Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. It's a dream. We got the whole team on the scene. Got Christine, and she's always giving us deets. We got Zach here to tell us how they're bringing treasuries on chain, on game. Got the RWA. Oh, hey, Coinbase using Lightning to pay. See me getting sporty through a portal. Rick and Morty talking ordinals with Gabe. Soon inscriptions will be 40 million. Orange pill in every cell you got. L2s are super hot. Now in Chuck and Fuse's thought. Battle tested, never bested every time we do this. And my homie Mr. Lucas spitting AI in the booth. It's the truth that the team is the dirty half dozen. The whole movement is my family and all of us are cousins. The team is just the meanest filthy genius with the pen. And the dream is for a future where intermediaries end. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of Firmwide Research at Galaxy Digital. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains. We have a great show for you today. You might have noticed from the wrap, but we have the entire Galaxy Research team on this episode to talk about a range of interesting topics that are current right now across the crypto world. And of course, we'll check in with our good friend Bimnet of BB from Galaxy Trading, as always, to talk markets. But before we get to all of that, I need to remind you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information contained in this podcast represents investment advice or an offer recommendation or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. This is a great episode. We're going to cover a range of topics like Ethereum development and AI and crypto, what overlap is there, Bitcoin ordinals, layer two developments, um, and a whole bunch more. So let's get right into the show. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, Bimnet, welcome to Galaxy Brains. Thanks for having me. So uh, I guess, you know, you can see over my shoulder in the block clock, you know, we're, we're unchained, unchanged basically week over week in Bitcoin. But we did have macro news today. We had CPI. Uh, what was the reading? What happened? Yeah, so uh, inflation came in slightly higher than expected. Uh, core core inflation in particular printed a 0.3 month on month versus expectations of, of 0.2. Um, headline came in at at 0.6 percent, uh, which is you know very high. Uh, the market reaction to it has been a little confusing. Um, initially, uh, rates moved higher, um, and then they moved lower. <laughs> um, and same thing with stocks; they sold off because you know inflation means higher for longer, more aggressive Fed policy, and now they're actually up on the day. Um, and so it's one of those numbers that um, you know I think. People looked at, they're like, inflation's still hot, but we have tight monetary policy, so it's really not going to change things too much. It wasn't high enough to change things. It wasn't high enough. In terms of like specific highlights from the report, um, airline fares showed a pretty dramatic jump after a pretty weak July. Wow. They were up 4.9% month on month versus being down wow. 8% the, the, the prior period. That's a lot month over month. Month over month, yeah. That's that's a that 5%, basically. Huge, that, that's, yeah. a, that's a big, big jump. Yeah. Um, in addition, like, headlines up because oil prices have been moving a lot higher. Um, you know, you've, you've got WTI crude at $89 a barrel and Brent, like, you know, 91. Um, and that impacts a, a ton of things. Um, and then mo- most importantly, though, um, the area, you know, that folks, the everyday person is most concerned with is, is you know, like shelter, right? And you still had a pretty reasonable uh, rise in owner's equivalent rent of like a 0.4% uh, month on month. Um, and then the Fed is really focused on, uh, you know, inflation X, uh, services inflation X shelter. Um, so without including the housing component and the services portion of the, the core CPI uh, was 0.4 month on month too. So a reasonably firm reading. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, throw that together with a, a labor market that's historically, you know, one of the tightest ever. And it's like, yeah, higher for longer still makes sense. Yep. Um, but, you know, 
there, there's still there's so much baked in um, in terms of cuts that, like, given the absolute levels of where we're at, I think you can still justify the, those kind of cuts because, you know, for example, the one-year, one-year interest rate forward puts uh, U.S. interest rates at 430, which is um, 100 basis points lower than where we're at now in change. And so I could I easily see us cutting 100 basis points in Over know, nine months from now or a year, you know, 16 months, that that kind of stuff. And, you know, so I, I think that right now the market is kind of fairly priced in, in a lot of different areas. The dollar's had a huge move. It's rallied a lot. I still think that's the, um, you know, path of least resistance. But uh, this week you actually got pretty dramatic pushback uh, from the BOJ and from the PBOC or, or, or China in general. Um, the BOJ uh, talked about the end of negative interest rates uh over over the weekend, they talked about it. Yes, yeah. uh, you know, That's in the con- in the context of if we achieve our our t- inflation target, which they're above, but yeah. they're like consistent, you know, staying in that inflation, they they don't consider raising from from negative interest rates. And then the, the Chinese, you know, basically were telling folks to you know sell dollars and yeah, they so there's some defensiveness there. Defensiveness, so. a- yeah. ab- absolutely. Um, and that's just the reality of, of, of trading dollars is, you know, you've got lots of folks that have an incentive to defend their currency that have huge dollar reserves. And so, you know, as, you know, we, we go higher in these, in these currency rates, like you will see more aggressive action if the dollar like continues to, to hold its strength. And to be honest, I, you know, I, uh, I keep thinking about it like it, in a world absent capital controls, right? Like the dollar would be just so much higher right now, in the sense that you know we've never been as as sort of technologically advanced. Like the reason why folks are so worried about bank runs now is a bank run can happen in like an hour, right? Because everybody on their cell phones can move. Right, you don't have to walk down there and and push your way into the Bailey Savings and Loan or whatever. No, no, no. Like right. even even during the financial crisis, I can't tell you the amount of people that I know that like went to the physical bank to do transactions, get cash or whatever. Oh, yeah, you mean even like 15 years ago. 15 years ago, yeah. yeah. And and so, like, you know, the idea now, it's like, okay, like if you're in Europe and, like, you have an easy way to convert to dollars, let's say via stables or something. Right. Like, there's a ton of people that would. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. M nations. Like, if you gave all of the, the Chinese rich people uh, an easy avenue to convert to dollars, like, right now, yeah. you, I'm—, I'm I tell you, dollars CNH would rip right. like like crazy, and so um, you know we live in a world that is is very controlled from a, a capital standpoint, and you know these governments have an, a pretty strong incentive to to keep those controls, yeah. and that's why you'll never see things like interest bearing stable coins because that would just destroy banking. <laughs> well, there have been an announcement or two of some uh, non U.S. ones, which is kind of interesting. No, I um, I love the idea. I mean, uh, it, well, it so, makes, but but, but makes the point total I think sense. your point is being that there will be defense against that by these nations, right? Yeah, like, these nations also just vested interest, you know, from folks like sure. you know, people the payment sell, processors, people that yeah. make mo- like the middleman is is what crypto is after. I mean, that's one and, of those holy and, grails, though, that interest bearing stable coin. Oh, it is the holy because it combines the the mm-hmm. interest bearing nature yep. of say like short term bonds. With the you know um, the fluidity, the high speed of, fluidity yeah. of, of a stable coin, right? Um, and yeah, there's reasons in the U.S. why we don't have them. I think it's killer, which are, are regulatory. To, it's a killer app. Oh, it's like wait, like it puts the killer would in really killer. benefit from this. It puts the killer in killer app. I think you're right for yeah, large swaths of the payment stack. Yeah, and um, you know I think uh, 
you know, it's entirely unfair. Um, let's let's shift gears briefly. Let's talk about crypto yeah, uh, markets. Um, I said at the top of this discussion that Bitcoin was mostly unchanged week over week. There was some fluctuation. We came down just slightly below 25 um, over the weekend, last weekend. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we've talked about this. I don't want to beat this to death. But like what, you know, we talk about Bitcoin catalysts. Like we know we have the halving in April of next year. Um, that's one of the most predictable monetary supply events on Earth. Just to show Bitcoin's predictable monetary no, policy. It's phenomenal. We know that comes in April and historically has been an important event in markets. But before then, I think, right, markets are very focused on the potential launch of an ETF. Yeah. But we've, it's, I mean, it's they're still focused on it. I mean, has anything really changed in the last week since we last talked about this? Well, Frankel Templeton uh, filed yesterday for a spot Bitcoin ETF. Oh, so they've joined the mix. They've joined the mix, and they also have, you know, I, th I believe a couple trillion <laughs> yeah. under management. So you've got you've got you got uh, BlackRock, the largest asset yep. manager in the world. You've got uh, um, Invesco and Invesco Galaxy. Galaxy. Uh, Invesco huge, obviously. Um, you got Fidelity, yep. which is huge, um, and and you've got who am I forgetting? There's a big one I'm forgetting. <laughs> uh, there's a 21 shares one, which no, is no, no. Small, there's other big ones. But yeah. Uh, um, so you got most of the world's of the top ones. asset yeah. managers, uh, and then Franklin Templeton too yeah. now. So um, it's Vanguard, big... are they coming? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, right? I mean, yeah, I think Vanguard's number two. I think worldwide. Yeah. Um, haven't seen one from them, but uh, Schwab also is a, is that one? I'm not sure. Did? I'm not sure. But uh, but the point is, is like yeah. a flood now. I, I would think it's fair to say it's not just the yeah, more no. crypto native issuers. It's the traditional asset managers. It already was, but I mean, again, Franklin Templeton's like I don't know, like four or five or yeah, something. Yeah, no, I mean, I think essentially what you're having happen is, you know, the way I like to think about it is, again, an ETF is one of the best financial innovations that's come out. You know, in the history of you know financial products, the U.S. capital markets, the best capital market in the history of capital markets, and there's about to be a Bitcoin spot ETF, right? Point one, point two, um, you know, when you consider a, a product that you know everybody now has access to, like how do they think about it? How do financial people think about assets, and how do people um, you know process risk, right? And essentially, it comes down to the numbers, right? Is Bitcoin as an asset going to help my portfolio or going to hurt it? Mm -hmm. And mathematically, the performance proves that in general, it is uh, risk reducing uh, because it's it generally uncorrelated. Because it's sharp ratio. Sharp, and, yeah. and and it's performance additive. Yeah. Right. So when you put it, put that into most portfolios, like uh, like a risk manager is going to struggle uh, saying no to that. Right. And right? Been, especially if you've destigmatized the risk of that's holding what I was gonna it. Say. It's not, and, not just stigma, too. It's mm -hmm. even some real risk, right? Like they couldn't put it, they, a wealth manager can't mostly track it. Yeah. Track it. They, yeah, okay. Like Simple individuals can like buy that. spot, but yeah. like it's not really in the platforms yet. They can't, there's, there's a regulatory risk overall or uncertainty to it that, you know, assuming it, if an ETF is approved in the United States, kind of comes with a stamp of approval for the product in yeah. general. Um, so they feel like if they've been thinking about it for those portfolio allocation reasons, um, they had plenty of reasons not to go there. There was custody yeah. risk. There was regulatory uncertainty. It wasn't on their standard platform, all of which would be you know mitigated or, or alleviated from uh, an ETF. And then the other really important point, which uh, you know BlackRock has done a really good job of, of highlighting, is is just a liquidity. Yeah. Right. When they when you come in with an ETF product uh, in the U.S., like there's going to be tons of market makers on there. 
um, and it will dramatically improve the, the liquidity of this product. And so I think a lot of folks will become more, much more comfortable Interesting. Uh, from about the standpoint of, of liquidity. Like you can long it and short it uh, much in, more in easily size, in yeah. bigger size. You can trade it on margin, et cetera. And as we know, like liquidity, you know, tends to uh, help a product, not, yeah. not, not hurt it. Right. And then the other thing is just, you know, the, the way to think about like financial assets in the modern era is, you know, you've got huge pools of capital trying to win like the market, right? They're trying to win, right? Mm -hmm. And so like at this point, there's just going to be so much vested interest in getting this product right. popularized or mainstream um, because it's the biggest asset managers telling their clients to, you know, yeah. is this a good or product? To look at it, yeah, to consider it. Consider it. Um, and so I just think that, you know, the financial complex that is the, the U.S., which is, you know, one of the main reasons why, like, the dollar will be dominant for, for you know, for a really long time and that, you know, why people still want to live here, um, you know, that's just going to help Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I like once it gets ingrained in the fabric of investing in the U.S., it's it's tough to go back. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so like if it gets if, if now people are going to DCA in their 401ks, you know, f for the next 30 years. Right. Like if it gets to that point, then, you know, in terms of how high this thing can go, um, you know, I think it's it's pretty significant. Yeah. Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading, my friend, as always, thanks for coming on Galaxy Brains. So we've got a little bit of a different episode than we normally do this week. As I said, we've got the entire Galaxy Research team here to talk about a range of topics. We cover a lot of stuff in this ecosystem and follow it closely. And I thought it would be really interesting if we could bring in the members of the team to talk about these topics, some of which we're following right now are very top of mind for us. I already listed some of them, so I won't relist them. But before I get into the interviews with our analysts to talk about those topics, I wanted to talk about one uh, that, that I didn't talk about with a guest that, that I would like to share, which is sort of what I'm focused on in the Bitcoin ecosystem today. There's been a huge interest, an uptick in interest in discussing what could be the next upgrade to Bitcoin. So we had the Taproot upgrade, which went live, uh, I think, over almost two years ago. Um, but I, a lot of people have been talking about um, various types of covenants proposals, whether that's op check template verify or op vault people talk about any prev out most of these are upgrades that would enhance the programmability of bitcoin to allow for things like covenants or ways to attach more encumbrances to bitcoin transactions that would allow significantly more programmability in particular for custody i'm very supportive of this concept of covenants i've been on the record talking about my support for op check template verify uh, which i think is a very conservative and reasonable upgrade that doesn't you know add too much or like encumber the protocol with a bunch of bloat but there's also been a huge debate of a, of a very old concept um bips 300 and 301 which collectively we refer to as drive change uh, drive chains and the idea here is that these are sort of minor custodied, M-I-N-E-R, minor custodied, merged mind sidechains. So it's it's sidechains with a more trustless peg uh, than a typical sidechain would have. I think this has been controversial for a range of reasons, like many proposals, also because of the sort of tenor and aggressiveness of its promotion, but also because it could create minor centralization. It, it, it could enhance, I should say. There's plenty of issues that contribute to the centralization of Bitcoin mining. Um, but this would be one, I think, that would amplify those. 
Um, so it's been a really interesting time. I think when you combine these debates with what people are trying to do in the ordinals ecosystem, which we'll get into uh, in, in one of the segments later in the show, um, there's, I think, a renewed vigor of enhancing Bitcoin's programmability and development on Bitcoin. In fact, there were two other um, sovereign SD, sovereign roll-ups that use ZK technology that were announced, one that uh, is working with the Taproot Wizards team, another one called Chainway. Again, born out of a desire to sort of use Bitcoin as a platform more than solely as a monetary asset. As we've talked about on this show, that that conflict um, about whether Bitcoin should be thought of primarily as a monetary asset versus is it a platform upon which to build other things um, has been a long-running debate in Bitcoin, but it, it is renewed, and I, I find that very interesting. It's something I'm following very closely. Um, so you'll hear more from me about, and, and from Galaxy Research, about developments in the development uh, roadmap for Bitcoin um, as we go forward. One other thing I wanted to point out that I saw, too, was that Coinbase, after some investigation, has announced that they do plan to integrate Bitcoin's Lightning Network, I guess, to the exchange. Most exchanges today that offer Lightning it's typically used for uh, retail user deposits and withdrawals. So as our audience may know, the Lightning Network is extremely fast and inexpensive way to uh, layer two network that allows you to move Bitcoin around really quickly. It's great for retail payments, um, but it can also be great for you know deposit and withdrawal, um, particularly at relatively small amounts, although the capacity and, and vigor of that network is increasing, allowing bigger ones. Um, I, I'm very supportive of this. I think it's interesting. I had thought about bi-directional payment channels, which is what Lightning is, um, as perhaps really effective for inter-exchange um, inter settlement or even institutional bilateral settlement, but we haven't really seen that use case take off. I think instead we've seen a lot of payments and we've seen a lot of this retail to exchange settlement happen. Um, I, I think the reason for that, why institutional level of settlement haven't taken off yet is one, Lightning is not very capital efficient. You have to park Bitcoin and have it sit there in channels for it to be used. And and, and it's not really at the level yet where it can support the actual size of settlement that occurs at an institutional level. Um, but I'm always waiting to see that. And I'm a big supporter of the Lightning Network. Tons of people building incredibly interesting stuff on the Lightning Network, a couple months ago, I was at Bitcoin Park in Nashville for the Lightning Conference. Literally hundreds of developers there building on Lightning. So really, really happy to see Coinbase uh, taking a step to enhance their Bitcoin offering. A very positive step for the Bitcoin world, in my opinion. Um, plenty of other stuff. I'm not going to belager the other things in the markets and regulation that I'm looking at. But let's get right into the interviews with the rest of the Galaxy Research team. Welcome to our friend Christine Kim from Galaxy Research. Christine, welcome back to Galaxy Brains. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. Always. And and of course, we're going to ask Christine about what is going on in the world of Ethereum development. Um, what's on our, you know, we got Dankoon. Yes. It's like the next big upgrade. That's the main thing that developers are working we're on. We're not right going to go mega deep into all the stuff that's necessarily, or I don't know, what, what are you following? And, uh, and then what's most interesting to you right now? Right now, I would say it's the testing that's being done on the Cancun Deneb upgrade. Developers are really trying to um, formalize all of the EAPs, all the Ethereum improvement proposals going into upgrade. The main up, like code change that's going into that upgrade is called proto dank sharding, which we have a report out on if you want to learn more about 4844. Um, but developers recently are starting to um, consider maybe making a very last minute inclusion 
to address the problem of Ethereum's growing validator set size. And okay, that so, really is what I've been spending most of my time lately yeah. thinking about. So wait, tell me the problem of, when you say Ethereum's growing validator set size, so right, every Ethereum validator is 32 ETH yes, individually. Yes, An individual or an entity can certainly run multiple of them if they have much more than 32 ETH to stake, right? And usually the staking providers, they run hundreds of validators on one node. Yeah. So what? There's how much? How many validators are there today? We are very close to hitting eight hundred thousand in total. And and you're saying the problem of the growing number of validators? What is the problem? The problem is that when you have a growing number of validators, the networking layer of Ethereum gets very bloated. So every single validator is an additional BLS signature to aggregate when you're making attestations of verifying the network, final, making sure that the network comes to final finality. So this isn't the layer one blockchain. This is the peer-to-peer -peer network, the gossip among nodes. Yes. Right? The process of... of propagating all of your messages, which are called attestations, um, when you're attesting to the network, um, aggregating all of those messages together. Um, it's, it's resulting in a higher number of orphan blocks, and it's resulting in a higher number of missed blocks in the first two slots of an epoch. I know these are very technical terms, um, but it's just a way to illustrate kind of the changes to the network, the way the network's getting bogged down by the growing number of validators. So it's not the amount of staked ETH, it's the number of unique validators that are creating, signing, sharing, reading these messages. Exactly. Among each other. And that's why one of the main long term, I wouldn't say long term, maybe medium term proposals is to actually allow validators to accumulate their ETH basically not have the cap of 32 ETH as the maximum effective balance, yeah. and just have the rewards of validators um, be proportional to how much staked ETH they That's how a lot of other have. networks operate, right? Yes. Yeah. And but the, here it's like, what, every single one is exactly 32? Every single one. Right. So there's, so there's, there's no proportionality. They all earn... Every validator earns exactly what it would earn if it gets a block, right? right. Yes. And adding, say increasing your your staked ETH from 32 to 35, that doesn't increase your rewards. You, the maximum amount of rewards is proportional to 32 ETH. I see. Um, and so the proposal is, why don't we increase that to 2,048 ETH? There's something, you know, like a very high number. Oh, wow. Which would reduce the total validator yes. set count. Mm -hmm. um, wow, when I think about that, though, that, that would make it a very, a much higher barrier to entry for normal folks to validate. Well, actually, it would make independent validators a lot more attractive to a user because right now, if you want compounding rewards, you have to go to a liquid staking service provider. You're not able to really earn more rewards if you had 35 ETH. If you wanted to earn rewards on, say, that extra, you right. know, couple of ETH, because you can't to put in that extra three ETH, and you no. can't spin up, spin it up as a new one. Either. You can't so, unless you pull it with other people. I see. And to be clear, this, you know, proposal around um, increasing the maximum effective balance of a validator is not even the proposal that we're thinking about going into Cancun oh, because it's so complex. Okay, so what is it? What is the proposal? So the other proposal that could potentially be included, and developers are going to talk about it this week on the Awkward Developer Call, is is um, just simply capping the churn limit of Ethereum. So right now the churn limit increases by one um, every time the validator set grows to a specific number. So it's just constantly increasing the rate at which more validators can, can enter. And so the proposal is just to simply cap the churn limit, prevent it from increasing any further until developers can really 
suss out a, a better solution. Oh, I see. So actually, it, they would alleviate or you know mitigate the issues now by preventing the total set from growing larger. Is that right? Or just reducing the rate at which it's growing? Reducing the rate at which it's growing. Because right now the churn limit, so it, it caps it at um, a maximum of, I think, 11 or 12 validators per epoch. Oh, wow. Which and is what? Every like few seconds, right? Or, or every few minutes. Um, six Six point four minutes. I yeah, think. so that that's a fair amount. It could grow by a lot. Yeah, and that churn limit will continue to increase as the validator set grows. But if you just cap the churn limit at say like fifteen, then you know for sure that the the you can more easily model the growth rate and can then figure out the process. So this is exactly. a temporary exactly. mitigation alleviation of the peer to peer network issues by you know slowing the growth of the validator set while they debate other longer term ideas. Exactly. And I will mention that, you know, aside from the the impacts to the networking layer, there's also this rationale for limiting the growth because Ethereum wants to do future upgrades like single slot finality yeah. to kind of improve the usability of the network and the user experience. Oh, wow. Interesting. So, no, that, that this is um, the ongoing development uh, from the switch to proof of stake, right? I mean, this is it's not a problem or question. I shouldn't say a problem, not even a question under proof of work, right? Proof of work, you just show up with work, right? You don't have to, you're not sitting there. You don't have to attest on an ongoing basis, right? So it doesn't matter how many ASICs or GPUs you have. It doesn't, you don't have to declare yourself to the network until you show up with the proof that you completed work. Mm -hmm. But a proof of stake network is a more peer-to-peer -peer network layer that it has to sort of exist. You have to be standing there ready to pr propose a block when you're selected, right? You can't just show up at any time and compete for a block. Um, so these issues are, and they, they're fundamentally different than proof of works. My point, and Ethereum mm -hmm. is still, you know, improving on and, and, and working on how to, how to operate that effectively, like long term. That's a lot, by the way, too. That's, a, you know, many hundreds of thousands of validators, yep. right? That's a, a lot more than most networks have, right? And they all, they all participate, I believe. Um, whereas, you know, many of them say like only the top 100 actually get to participate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it is an interesting problem. Yeah, a very different model. I think the proof of stake model that Ethereum has um, employed is more complex because it transitioned from a proof of work model as well, I and see. so it had to finagle around with some other um, properties. And 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 the fact that Ethereum's consensus model is really um, a combination of two strains of proof of stake: one that favors network finality, and the other that favors liveness. And a lot of these complexities come from the way Ethereum developers are trying to maximize both chain security and liveness at the same time, which other proof of stake blockchains, they just pick one or the other. You know? Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and anything else on, on uh, like, what about, real quick for our audience, Dankun timing, right? The next upgrade, you, you said uh, it's well known that this proto-dank sharding is, is the sort of the most well-known part of that upgrade. Um, which, of course, we, we've talked about, we have a report, but is uh, creates new specialized block space on the L1 that's focused on layer two roll-up uh, data that makes it easier, cheaper, faster, et cetera, for roll-ups. Um, it's sort of the first it's proto because it's the first version of it. That's the sort of the main one. But what does the timing look like? In the past, they've said we think maybe this new, this next upgrade, this will be the next one after um, Chappella and mm -hmm. Shanghai Capella, which actually enabled withdrawals from... 
uh, the proof of stake network for the first yeah. time, which is the what, completion like, of the merge. The completion of the merge. When was that? Like April, like or May, yep, March, April twelfth. April twelfth. Let's go. Christine knows it. Um, so this would be the first upgrade since then, and it had been previously discussed as maybe happening in the fall. Like, what's your sense? You think now on timing for this upgrade? Yeah, that fall milestone. We've completely blown you think past it's slipping? it. Yeah, it's not probably definitely not going to happen um, by the end of October, um, based on the testing and the number of tests, public test nets that Ethereum developers still have to get through. They still have to launch Cancun Deneb on. Um, you know, Gorley testnet on these these public Ethereum testnets. Um, and so there are some developers that are saying it could be possible that we see the mainnet upgrade happen mid to late November. But I think that's quite an ambitious timeline. And given that it really hits up against, you know, the holidays coming up in December and with the potential inclusion of this churn limit, um, setting a cap to the churn limit. I think um, there's a lot of factors that kind of show that this upgrade might be more likely in the early part of 2024. I see, like a Q1 type of thing. Um, Awesome. Well, Christine Kim from Galaxy Research, uh, thank you for joining Galaxy Brains as always. Thanks for having me. Welcome Lucas Cheyen from Galaxy Research to Galaxy Brains. Thanks, Lucas, for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, so Lucas was on an episode last summer um, talking about MakerDAO, the machinations of yes. MakerDAO at the time. It was early in what Endgame like yes. rollout yeah, proposal. Yeah, exactly. Endgame had kind of just been released, and there was a ton of infighting, and it was a really political period for MakerDAO. Yeah, so. it was really interesting. Lucas uh, was an intern at Galaxy Research last summer. He's now a researcher on the uh, Galaxy Research team. Yes, honored to be back. Yeah, honored to have you. And let's talk. We're going to talk about two main topics. I think with Lucas. Um, one, you're working on a big paper. Well, I'll say what they are first. We're going to talk about crypto and AI and what sort of overlap you know we see in the market today. Yep. Um, and then also we'll we'll dig into Solana a little bit. You've been following Solana for a long time. Um, you're writing a paper about crypto and AI. I'm not going to spoil the paper, which is not out yet. But um, what are you finding? What is the overlap? Like, are there yes. categories of overlap? Like, is, is there any at all? Yeah, definitely. And uh, if you won't spoil it, I'll spoil it. Okay. So basically, um, the way that I'm breaking it out, and the goal of the paper for me was to kind of look at what is actually happening yeah. at the intersection tangibly right now. And so the way I look at it is there's kind of like four categories I'm seeing emerge. So the first category is pretty boring. It's just like the traditional Web2 AI integrations we're seeing with the explosion of ChatGPT. So um, using Copilot to like 10x developer talent, um, using stuff like training chat. Oh, oh yeah. I, I see. You mean like it's there's not like crypto integration with the AI, but like crypto developers could use it. Exactly. Got it. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, if you're a new DeFi protocol and you've got governance training a ChatGPT so that it can somebody can go in and use a chatbot to understand exactly how your government works, making it more accessible. Um, so things like Even that. Even like code review, right? Yep. Uh, smart contract security and audit is a huge thing we're seeing right there. So yep. that that is like where I think the bulk of the integration, you might say, is happening right now. But it's not specific to crypto. Right. But it definitely benefits crypto. Sure. And then there's these three other categories that I think are really popping up and emerging right now. And so the first one is um, decentralized compute networks. And so these are basically two-sided marketplaces where you have people who supply GPUs, which are needed for you know training these models and actually running inference requests. And then you have AI teams on the other side that want to buy these GPUs. And um, we're seeing a lot of these projects start to pop up. And we're also seeing a lot of older crypto projects that are integrating these as part of their offerings because um, there's this huge GPU 
CPU kind yeah. of supply constraint. And so this is, I think, an area where it's going to be very important to see how adoption goes because there's a huge tailwind to this, which is because there's such limited GPUs in the broader world right now, this that should be driving people on chain to actually get past like the UX obstacles yeah. Yeah. and actually use these GPUs. And so um, Akash is an example of a protocol. They just rolled out their GPU offering. And so we're, we've seen, I think they have like 150 or so GPUs. About 80 of them have been leased out so far. So they're seeing good initial adoption. Yeah. It's definitely going to take a while to see if it really takes hold. Well, you know, what about like um, all the people's latent GPUs? You know, I'm a gamer, but I sleep yes. at night, right? Like, can those get, is there, have you seen anything that's like, yeah. this is a long time thing, by the way. People have used like, a, you know, like SETI, the search for X for terrestrial yes, intelligence exactly. they used to have the screensaver maybe they still i think they probably still do yeah. where you could donate like your cpu cycles to their effort yes. to crunch data is that something where those totally. types of gpus can also be unlocked here yes totally so those are definitely being rolled out akash render all these different protocols they have something um, yeah for they that. have that it's just if you're doing like cutting edge ai research and development you want like h100 and the best ones exactly yeah. so um, and I don't think you're going to have that same GPU constraint to get those type of GPUs if you want to go to like yeah. Amazon uh, Web Services, Azure, Google Cloud Provider, things like that. So, so, so that's two-sided market. That's the second two-sided one. market. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, the third one is something called zero knowledge machine learning (ZKML). And um, actually, this other guy um, on the blockchain, uh, the Block Crunch podcast, put it really well to help me understand why this is important, which yep. is AI is very resource intensive. You need a lot of data and a lot of compute. Blockchains are resource constrained. You know, you can't, it becomes very expensive to run a model on chain. And so what ZKML is doing is it's really bridging that gap between the two. And basically, it's allowing you to run compute off chain that can then be verified on chain. Now, I think the caveat here is it's very early for these type of projects. Most of them are in like proof of concept type stage. But what they're really testing is, can we bring down the costs enough that you could run a ChatGPT-like model off-chain and then put a proof on-chain that shows, hey, I ran the model that you told me to run. And I think we're probably going to see in the next year or two whether or not this is a viable path forward. There's other things emerging like fully homomorphic um, encryption. You have like these secure enclaves like Intel SGX that are also competing kind of with um, the CKML space. But um, I think if this is successful, what it will unlock is huge things in smart contract functionality. Mm -hmm. So you'll be able to have DeFi protocols that have, you know, um, self, uh, self like moderating smart contracts. So if uh, you want to rebalance a pool or something like that, you've got gaming, uh, you can create really cool bots and things like that. Um, it could have some implications for identity. I think, I think it's a little bit it's still far off, um, but but it would be a great like unlock and it would really expand the design space for the smart contract space, I think, if ZKML is successful. When you talk to teams, they'll tell you it's very early and it's very expensive. Still. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be a great paper from Lucas. We're going to check that out. Let's let's switch into Solana here, um, which, you know, I've talked about as, you know, probably the only in, interesting um, community, alt, alt L1 community right now. I mean, no offense to anyone else, but in terms of usage, right, it's still yeah. still around. And and um, what's what's the interesting stuff you're seeing in the Solana world these days? Yeah, so I think for me, it's it's not so much about like the products or stuff that's being rolled on Solana. For me, a lot of like what drives my interest in Solana is just the space that it occupies in the broader crypto ecosystem. And so um, just to like give some context, I, I originally got interested in Solana because I was doing a lot of on-chain stuff on Polygon and Binance Smart Chain. 
And Solana got released. And um, actually, there was this NFT mint for this NFT called DGen Ape Academy. And um, I just liked the art. And I was like, I should try and get this. And I went on to Solana. And immediately, I was like, wow, the UX is just so much better than anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And so to this day, I think they continue to be kind of a leader when it comes to UX. And a big part of that is MetaMask is not the standard wallet. You have things like Phantom and Soulflare, which just much better. So I think in terms of UX, that's what really brought me into Solana in the first place. What's kept me interested in it is really narrative community and then tech. So from the narrative and community aspect, I think because Solana is kind of going in such a different direction than the EVM people are, it's created like this almost counterculture yeah. and you you have really committed devs who believe in the vision of Solana and want to make sure they're building on Solana only. They're not just going to chase the next new chain. That but there were out. those uh, NFT, uh, the D-Gods guys, they left yeah. Solana, right? I, I agree. There so were some that I, did leave. And I actually put out a tweet thread saying that Solana's best value right now is just like an exporter. Like we <laughs> export our best projects, you know? Um, but that, that said, the fact that you could build up a project on Solana to that level and then move the community over to Ethereum and a remain a top project, I think is actually a real, shows the real value proposition of something like Solana for, for getting your start and for building on because it has these really cheap fees. You can bring in a lot of people that might not have been involved if you had started on Ethereum. Interesting. And, and um, the other thing that people had been, I think, rightly critical of Solana on was its its downtime issues. Yes, like, for sure. What, what's the status on that? Yeah. Um, so so that's kind of like the third bucket for me. So there's the there's the UX, there's like the narrative and community, and then there's the actual tech. And and I say it's the third bucket. It's obviously the most important, but it's because it creates that environment that where you can have that community and where you can have that UX. And I think Solana over the past year, the Solana Labs team and the developers have done an incredible job really addressing a lot of the bottlenecks that were causing this downtime. So. Solana has not had an outage since February, and the second quarter was the first time there was no outage in a very long time. And they've implemented really like three key updates. Um, like, I don't think we need to go into them too much, but basically what Solana has done is they've made it so that when there is congestion in a part of the network, it doesn't affect other parts of the yeah. network. And that's a huge unlock. Right, so it's like yeah. isolated fee markets. Exactly. And Sta yeah, yeah, it's something called Quick, and then there's something called stake-based QoS. So yeah, cool. um, those, I think, are huge unlocks, great for the tech. And then looking forward, they're releasing another client called FireDancer that's only going to increase the throughput of the network. Um, and it'll also be like a second client for Solana besides Ethereum, you don't have any other major L1s that have multiple clients. So that's really good for the resilience of the network over the long term. Um, and and so I, I just think there's a lot of excitement around Solana. And I think the goal for Solana during this bear market was to be the third chain that's always brought up in conversations. Yep, yep. And I think they've achieved that goal. All right. Lucas Chayen from Galaxy Research. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Gabe Parker from Galaxy Research. Gabe, welcome back on the podcast. Thank you for having me. You've never been on the podcast since we've shot video, but Gabe was also on last summer, um, and now you're back. And we're going to talk about uh, Bitcoin Ordinal's ecosystem, yep. which, as our audience will know from our shows with Casey Rotemore and Udi Wertheimer and Dennis Porto, um, I'm going to simplify this dramatically, but our Bitcoin NFTs, it's a way to upload data, including images, and then simultaneously um, tether them to specific unique Satoshis. Um, what's going on in Bitcoin ordinal world? Because we put out a great report, which Gabe was a co-author of back in late February. Um, what's happened since then? Well, since then, um, a lot's happened. I think there's been a lot of impressive strides on the infrastructure side. So 
to put it in perspective, when we released our first report on ordinals, the total amount of inscriptions was only at uh, 640,000. And today we're just a bit above 31 million. Wow. So there's been an insane amount of growth since we first talked about it. Um, during that time, I think the most obvious thing is that the infrastructure is now here on the marketplace side and on the wallet side. I think one of the biggest problems in the first months of the Ordinal Saga was there, there were no major marketplaces available um, and the wallet infrastructure was not there yet. You know, things like uh, UTXO labeling and like SAT labeling didn't exist. So, you know, there were cases where users would just accidentally spend yeah. their UTXO yeah. set with we call the it like a SAT. coin control uh, and, yeah. and, and labeling, UTXO labeling yeah. in the wallet. So you could accidentally, while conducting a different Bitcoin transaction, you know, just trying to like pay Gabe for, you know, lunch or something, um, send him my the SAT that includes my ordinal, right? So accidentally mix it with my other UTXOs, only some really advanced wallets actually advanced wallets. at the time, Bitcoin wallets even had that coin control feature, um, but now they've, they've sort of sorted that out. Yeah, and the UX is really clean. I mean, I use Unisat and uh, that's where I collect all my ordinals. And it's really easy. It's the, honestly the same look and feel as MetaMask in the Coinbase wallet. So, you know, the infrastructure has improved tremendously. Yeah. And I think on the marketplace side, you know, we've had players like Magic Eden enter into the right, scene, right. OKX, Binance. And, you know, right now those are the dominant players uh, accumulating the most volume. You know, Magic Eden was the most impressive because at the time they supported ordinals, they were the fifth largest marketplace out of all NFT marketplaces, you know, because they also support Solana, Polygon, um, and you know, it's like they're they're the first native marketplace, right? Existing so, um, one, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know, I think this trend is going to continue to play out. You know, NFTs, as we know, are in a bear market. The meta is dead. NFTs are kind of just irrelevant right now. So, even in this state, it's impressive to see players like Magic Eden give it a try. Yeah, you know, and absolutely. I think down the road, you know, we could definitely see like an open sea onboard ordinals right um and i think that would be major are we seeing um like interest from the broader nft community migrate at all to ordinals or is it the sprouting of a new community primarily like how do you how do you view that is it more is it bitcoiners is it people that weren't really into one and or bitcoin and so it's like a third way or is it coming from the to what extent in your mind i think it's a mix of both but Predominantly from the communities I'm in, and especially at Bitcoin Miami, just talking to people who are in the ordinal space, it seems to me that, you know, Bitcoiners who never really got a chance to experiment with NFTs on Ethereum now have the opportunity to have that same feel and, and embrace the NFT culture on their own chain on, you know, and, for you know, that's the first time some of these people have collected just digital collectibles on chain at all. So I think it's a lot of Bitcoiners and just curious degen traders who yep. trade, you know, just NFTs sure. for, just for pure profit. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what think, about the issuers, though? Um, like who has come over to we know there's a bunch of interesting. We've talked to several members, right, of the Taproot Wizards team. Um, but who from the broader NFT ecosystem has issued on ordinals? Well, the biggest player is Yuga Labs, 
as you know, they right. they released Twelve Fold, um, which was a generative art collection on and, Shake. And now there's like a new like like a, a scavenger hunt they're doing with it or something. Yeah, too? they're doing these like puzzles, and you have to upload the solution as an ordinal, right? Yeah, you you inscribe your answer, and if you're right, you get like point one two five Bitcoin or something like that. Wow, that's significant. Cool. That's fun. You know, but that was interesting because. First of all, Yuga Labs has never released the generative art collection at all, at all. Yeah, and they decided to venture into that on Bitcoin, and I think you know that that shows that ordinals are here to stay. You know, it's obvious it, it it's it works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were able to release an impressive collection with no you know hurdles, no issues really. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. The, it was a clean mint. It was an interesting mint. It was it was a bidding war basically. If you were like in the top, was it 200, 250? Yeah, or so? I forget how many they had. Yeah, it was not that many. Two or three hundred. There's somewhere yeah, in there. It's a very limited collection. And I think that's yeah. You had to blindly bid, and only if you ended up in the top whatever that would you win. Um, and then everyone else saw their Bitcoin sent back to them basically. But it was, that was interesting. Yeah. So there, I think that's the most significant collection in my eyes right now. Although, you know, the floor has gone down. Um, I think just last week, uh, a twelve-fold ordinal sold for like seventy or sixty percent below the, the mint price. Yeah, you know, but like we're seeing that across all NFTs, just like floor price prices plummeting. So that, I think that will definitely rebound as we enter into like the next cycle. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's the biggest thing is right, right now everything's down bad in the c- digital collective space. Yeah, so I'm not surprised that. These collections on Bitcoin, you know, are trading down. So, but but the the more important thing is that there's still volume, and you know, it's people are excited. And so. there's infrastructure development, which is I think different, right? Most of the rest of the NFT world has already been built out, but there's there's a lot of people building. What are you looking for, um, sort of in the you know next you know over the next six months to? be interesting in ordinal space is it upgrades to ordinals i know to the ord protocol i know there have been several yeah um yeah. is it you know something we're looking at um is recursions mm-hmm. which is basically attaching one inscription to multiple other inscriptions to combine um to, to create a more complex um ordinal right like one ordinal could be the culmination of like six inscriptions or even more so we kind of think of recursions as like a compression mechanism, which has been, you know, a new thing in the broader NFT space, just yep. like scaling ordinals or scaling just, you know, NFTs. This is kind of where this came from. So we're, we're looking at uh, recursions, uh, reinscriptions as well. Um, and then these are very, these are, we can call it just new upgrades to the protocol that are still being experimented. Um, but it's the best time to experiment in a bear market, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, once I think other collections see how people are using uh, recursions and reinscriptions, we're gonna see more dynamic uh, collection down the road. Cool. Gabe Parker from Galaxy Research. Thanks for coming on Galaxy Brands, my friend. Thank you. Let's go now to Charles Yu from Galaxy Research, our friend. Welcome back to Galaxy Brains, Chuck. Yeah, GM. GM. Um, so you've been following, an, um, an, among many things, the Layer 2 wars, I'm going to call them. I don't know. Is it L2 season? I mean, as far back as almost right after you joined Galaxy, you wrote a great paper called 
uh, L2 in search of scaling, a guide to layer two, which is on our website. Um, it's a great report that really takes a very high level overview of the layered scaling approach ecosystem at that time. Um, you've since followed it up multiple times, but most recently on the Glass Half Full series, looking at optimism and Arbitrum, right? Optimistic rollups. We've got a new thing coming out on those very soon. It's people have called it on-chain summer, right? Uh, L2 season is what I've called it. Like, what is the state of layer twos today in your mind? I mean, I'll be honest, we called it L2 season back in 2021 yeah. and again in 2022. <laughs> it's always L2 um, season. Yeah, honestly. But now it actually feels like rollups are gaining like much more traction and adoption. Um, they're getting major sign-on from major corporations. Um, yeah. And it's like really app applications fun. are deploying there at scale now, right? Yeah. Even different projects across like different blockchains, like we're seeing some parachains launch with you know, uh, ZK rollups or um, all L1s like Celo, Phantom, even proposing to come back as, as rollups. I saw that some alt L1s like that now will sort of rejoin the Ethereum fold as an L2. Um, what is just broadly for the audience who may not have thought about this or know, what is broadly the reason why layered scaling, why L2s, like why, what is the thesis here generally for why they need to exist? I mean, I think it's really just that Ethereum's the big liquidity hub. Um, it's got the most integrations with different, you know, on-ramp providers. Um, it's got one of the most robust, like, developer ecosystems. And really, it's just where all the capital is. But why not build right on the L1? Well, because it's too hard, um, too costly, too expensive. Um, you're dealing with massive gas um, costs, and it really just prevents, you know, a bunch of um, applications from really taking off. So you think the L2... Um season season three <laughs> it does it does that impact the l1 thesis i mean is that i feel like those fees and gas costs and whatnot and slowness and whatever on ethereum um in 21 played a huge role in the alt l1 growth we saw from you know chains like solana and or was it sol luna avax was like the the joke right and they sort of like went you needed faster cheaper block space at that time because of congestion is that if we have a, a budding ecosystem, viable ecosystem of layer twos, does that, how does that impact the L1 thesis in your mind? Yeah, well, I mean, the whole idea behind like the all L1 thesis was basically just shortcuts to achieving scale. Um, I mean, you know this with uh, some of the growth hacks that have been proposed for Bitcoin, um, for Ethereum, just faster, cheaper, bigger blocks right um to enable cheaper costs and really i think people have come to understand like the difficulties in actually like attracting like um more liquidity to their chain from the ethereum ecosystem it's much easier to just build on top of it um to have that liquidity more integrated more available and um yeah really just uh lessens the load for for developing teams. What do you think on the ZK side, right? Because you did a lot, you did, you've done a lot of work and published a lot on the optimistic roll-up side, right? These are the, sort of the two main flavors in the Ethereum world, right? And and optimistic roll-ups are out there, right? I mean, you've got Optimism and Arbitrum and, and now Base, right? Coinbase's um, optimistic roll-up. Um, but the ZK stuff is still mostly under development, right? Um, is it under, what is the state of the ZK situation actually at the moment? I mean, so far we've seen Polygon ZK EVM, ZK Sync Era launch as the, the first two ZK EVMs. Um, this was 
back in March, I believe. Yeah. Um, towards the end of March. So they've been running. They've been running. Are people using them at scale? They're showing a lot of transactions, a lot of activity. Um, but okay. to be fair, I think most of the activity is related to airdrop farming. Um, yeah. Layer zero, Stargate, like, you know, uh, these projects that have really uh, attracted a lot of bots and farming activity. Interesting. So, so it's so they're not you don't in your mind yet challenging the you know organic use of optimistic rollups. As far as what I've seen so far, like I haven't seen anything new really brought to the table from these zk rollups, um, or at least nothing on the zk VM side. Like adoption side, yeah. yeah. Um, all DeFi activity is still pretty much feels the same if not like more limited so but this is thought by many as ultimately like the holy grail of layered scaling right is like zero knowledge based something right and the so are we is it that we're just not there yet the the, the they're not they're not there yet or, or what's how do you envision that playing out like let's say they get technically you know competitive with other types of roll-ups then do people start migrating from optimistic ones to them if they're better or like what does that competitive dynamic look like when you sort of take out your crystal ball yeah well right now it's really just i think they have to get over like all the forward promising um that's typically done by crypto projects across the space yeah um look at like the actual usability of the product like today um you know there's obviously a lot of hype around zk technology um it's been around forever but like i said like i've been hearing ZK rollups are the premier scaling solution um, for a long time <laughs> for a long time. And, uh, you know, I just haven't really seen um, anything really come to fruition to really challenge that idea, especially while the optimistic rollups are, are still like taking off and finding like massive new waves of adoption. And they are finding new waves of adoption. Right? What's driving that? Um, like which types of apps are we seeing on these rollups, et cetera? Yeah, um, I think Coinbase is a uh, base chain is a good example here um some of the applications that we've seen like friendtech have you know really brought like new social fi like activities like uh into fruition it's pretty net new right it's not just like launching relaunching an amm or relaunching a lending protocol on there right but it's like there isn't a friendtech elsewhere at least not a successful one. <laughs> yeah. they. In fact, we saw um, that uh, for a couple of days recently, uh, the total trading volume on Frentech exceeded the volume of all NFT trades on marketplaces. It's a pretty wild stat. I mean, and that's, that's all. Uh, um, that's just one application, I guess. I think that's just growth marketing hacks for you. Um, you know, I won't say like leaking airdrop rumors, but um, anytime... Well, there is there like, is literally a section in the app that says airdrop and shows the your accumulated points, and they're not like it's not clear what points will mean. Yeah, that was something that was new that was added in like this past week, right? No, no, it's been there for a couple. I, I don't know. I'm not really on there much, so I'm not sure. But it it's literally there, and I think you get them from types of activity that you perform, um, and maybe also for like the number of invite of your invite codes that get used. I'm not sure. So right, I think there was a new measure that was introduced. I think they may have altered it. Yeah, or something. Yeah, which really just drove like the new like rebound in activity so in a future where blockchain based systems are widely adopted across swaths of society are most people on an l2 i believe so yeah um i don't think it's necessarily up to the power of the the team building the l2 um if they're doing that in isolation like it's going to become much more difficult to compete with 
um, chains like Coinbase, where um, they have touch points at every single, like, I guess, like client interaction. Wallets, on ramps. So yeah. it's what it's a it's a like a business development and adoption type of game. You think? I mean, people are lazy. People want easy and, and, integrations. And it seems like there's what if I infer from your point, like then there's it almost becomes commoditized. The L two block space. It's not you're not so much competing on the technical merit of the thing, but instead like how connected it is. I wish that weren't the case, but yeah, it seems like. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, Charles, you from Galaxy Research. Chuck, my friend, thank you for coming on Galaxy Brains. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Zach Bacorny from Galaxy Research. Zach, thanks so much for coming on Galaxy Brains. Yeah, pleasure to be here, Alex. Thank yeah. you. So this is Zach's first time on Galaxy Brains because um, he's new to our team as of this past summer. Um, so welcome. Welcome to Galaxy. Yeah, appreciate it. It's been an awesome two months. Got a great team here. And we got a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah, heads down. So I wanted to ask Zach, one of your primary interests, and certainly not only, but interest in crypto is the emergence of more real-world assets on-chain. What is that, first of all? When I say real-world assets on-chain, what am I even talking about? Yeah, so essentially we're just bringing, or issuers are just bringing traditionally off-chain assets, uh, like treasury bonds, private credit, related debt. Uh, and issuing tokens around them on the blockchain. So you're bringing those opportunities. So is this tokenization, has tokenization finally found a product market fit here? Um, I don't know if we could necessarily say that because it is just kind of demanded from people who are natively on-chain. Right? Haven't there always been, I mean, like stable coins, is that a real-world asset in your mind? You know, they're dollars, are they not? Yeah, technically, like, stablecoins are real-world assets. Would you, um, like, if you produce a chart of, like, real-world asset growth, would you include stablecoins or no? So, actually, that's a great question. Because uh, in the report that we're putting together now, I excluded them right. kind of from the whole deal um, just because the force is kind of working against them uh, in terms of, like, interest rates off-chain rising, disincentivizing people from holding stablecoins yeah. on-chain, uh, and just their relative size, right? They're so big. Uh, so it kind of obfuscates what's going on with the treasuries. I and, see. It's sort of yeah. a category error in terms of understanding the actual thing you want to talk about. Exactly. So when you talk about treasuries, what's the point of bringing treasuries on chain? Like why? Why? All in the yield. So there's what? There's So right, we have a high interest rate environment. Um, people are getting yield in TradFi through bonds. Yeah. In excess of what you would otherwise be getting on chain through like an accessible channel like depositing usdt right but that's a flip from like the prior bull market when yeah when interest rates were zero in the traditional world or near zero um but people were getting yield on chain that was much higher which probably drove a lot of the growth in tvl there i will say a lot of that yield right was um like implied yield it was like incentivized yield so you would receive like some token you'd be farming yeah Um, in some instances yeah the calculation of the yield was like were you to farm and then sell the token um but that's flipped, right? So is that driving, that's now driving a demand on-chain for yield that's pulling in these traditional assets? Yeah, exactly. So like, you're even seeing it in like the liquidity of like stablecoin pools on Aave and other lending protocols. They're down in the billions while we're looking at an increase in money market funds and U.S. Treasuries on-chain going up uh, to a similar magnitude. So where are they going, like these Treasury bills and, and other Real world, like like where on chain is is this happening? This activity happening? Yeah, it's primarily happening on Ethereum. Um, some interest in uh, Polygon zkEVM. But in but in in which app in which types of applications? 
Like, is it is it like uh, lending protocols? Like, who? How, how is like a traditional issuer putting them on chain? Like, to like, to where am I going to buy them or or whatever? Like, what? Yeah. So, in a lot of instances, you're just going straight through their portal, like very similar to how you would have like a traditional really like the account. issuer themselves. Yeah. So they have like sign up pages and KYC AML procedures that you have to oh, go wow. through. Um, in some instances, you can buy them on DEXs, um, but again, there are like limitations in terms of like whitelisted addresses that can hold these regulatory and, issues. Yeah, yeah. So, in, but Maker has had some RWA, and I apologize to my traditional friends for calling it that. <laughs> some real world assets, right? In their in their PSM, even right? Like they have like a, what was it like a Huntington Valley Bank and. I can't remember, was it Santander or another? There was some mm -hmm. traditional debt there. Um, and and there are some protocols that are designed to help people, help DeFi applications integrate these types of things, right? Yeah, yeah. So you are seeing a fair amount of that, and they're kind of piggybacking off of like Tether's playbook, almost, where they're kind of cashing in on the off-chain revenue that they could be earning uh, and kind of translating it and kind of democratizing it uh, in a way that uh, kind of allows the value accumulated by these RWAs to roll up to individuals as opposed to it just being gated by some centralized issuer um, like it is in most cases. It's definitely tricky uh, from a regulatory standpoint in the U.S. in particular. Um, and that that will save that discussion, I think, for another day um, because it's a big, deep discussion about DeFi in the U.S. 100%. Um, but do you think, like, is this, you know, if we talk about the ebb and flow, the switch, right, when DeFi yields were higher than TradFi yields in 20 and 21, you saw a big inflow into DeFi. When they were lower than TradFi yields, you've seen a big outflow from DeFi. Now people are trying to bring the TradFi yields back on chain. Like, if the yields come back down and... TradFi, like when we see the capital flow back out, like is it right now we have this like binary system right, where their capital's flowing between them in search of yield. Like, do you think that continues forever or is there some equilibrium? I guess if maybe if we get like fully regulated, like approved DeFi, then they become the same one system instead as like, how, what, how, what does that look like in your mind? Yeah, exactly. So like in the long run, I definitely see the, the yields converging on each other. Uh, what you would achieve off chain will be what you achieve on chain. Uh, but for now, you kind of have like these two systems, and it's almost like a dollar is not worth a dollar, right? Like a stable coin is less productive than a dollar in the real world. And that's kind of what I've been trying to wrap my head around is like, how sustainable or how sticky are these real world assets that are coming on chain, right? And like history is kind of being written today. Like we can't look back in the past and be like, oh, this happened in like 2017. Like here's like, an analog to look yeah, at. Yeah, exactly. Um, but what I found kind of looking within RWAs is that they are very sensitive to interest rates. Like you look at private credit, uh, you know, it maxed out at like 1.4, 1.5 billion, right as the Fed started hiking rates, and it came way down, uh, almost by 75% as rates started to rise. So history is being written, uh, so we can't know for sure, but kind of looking within real world assets themselves, we are seeing that they are sensitive to interest rates and that their longevity may only last so long as the higher for longer narrative sticks and yeah and they follow through with that that's very interesting so wait when you say private credit you're talking about some of those ones i mentioned like huntington valley bank stuff on maker is that like what was on chain that that reduced 75 percent? yeah so there are protocols that essentially raise money on chain to loan out to companies off chain i see so yeah companies that wouldn't otherwise or startups that wouldn't otherwise be able to get funding through traditional channels uh, can raise money through these on-chain channels 
on-chain people benefit from the higher yield, the off-chain startup company, whatever it might be, benefits from new funding. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting to see geographically where this capital is kind of flowing um, in terms of where these lenders are distributing it to. You're seeing in Africa, Latin, and South America. And yeah, really cool stuff in that perspective. And that was big when there was uh, no yields in TradFi. In the low interest rate environment. So like yeah. as in the high interest rate environment, that, that activity on chain, that activity on chain has slowed. It's being replaced by bringing the yield bearing assets on chain for the DeFi user, right? Because it's not, it's not, in my sense of it is that it, there's no competition between DeFi and TradFi. No one's like, you know what? I was going to do this at my brokerage firm, but instead I'll do it in DeFi. It's really servicing the demand for the exist from the existing DeFi users 100%. for yield, right? Um, and that to me, that's a barrier for long-term DeFi adoption. It's got to be good enough, regulated, safe enough, whatever, to actually compete with TradFi infrastructure, um, rather than just we do have a, a large uh, community of people that hold crypto assets that they can't use in TradFi, so they're saying, you know what, bring the TradFi to me, basically. Yeah, that's the yeah. state of it today, right? Exactly. Yeah, I don't think we're converting any new users through RWAs. I think these issuers, traditional on-chain native or crypto native, they're just servicing people who are already here. Yeah. Like they see demand. Yeah, they're exactly. They're it. just kind of filling the hole for demand uh, that exists among the on-chain cohort. Well, I'm really excited users. to read Zach's report. It's going to come out in the next few weeks, I think, and um, you have a lot of data on this to help tell this story. But it is growing, right? It's growing. RWA yeah, is on-chain. Yeah, undeniably, it is growing. Um, and as long as the right environment kind of stays intact, you think it, will? Uh, it will, yeah, I imagine it will continue. Very interesting. Well, Zach Bacorny from Galaxy Research. Thanks so much for joining Galaxy Brains. That's it for this week's edition of Galaxy Brains. Thank you to our guests, Bimnet Abibi, as always, but also the entire Galaxy Research team, Christine Kim, Lucas Chayan, Gabe Parker, um, Zach Bacorny, Charles Yu, uh, really enjoyed this. We're going to do this a little bit more often with the whole team so we can bring more of their insights out to you, our faithful listeners. Thank you, as always, for listening to Galaxy Brains. We love making this show. Thank you to my friend Phineas Ellis, our producer. Um, and like always, we will catch you next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.